Tight knit. Tight knit. Tight knit. Tight knit. Tight knit. Workforce from the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation. All right, come on, let's go. Welcome to Tight Knit. I'm Shannon Kaysen. Tight Knit is a series about the many ways people are working to build stronger relationships and communities. Season two follows teens and adults seeking to work, from new jobs to new careers, and the structures that either support that or make it difficult. In this episode, we'll be talking about manufacturing careers of the future and how Buffalo and Detroit are bringing new jobs to town and new skills to workers. I'm joined by Carrie Jr. the second, our tight-knit reporter covering Buffalo. Hey, Carrie. How you doing, Shannon? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Was this your first time in Buffalo, and what was your first impression? This was my first time spending multiple days in Buffalo, and uh, I went in March, and it was cold, so especially <laughs> uh, around the Niagara Falls. I'm sure. I'm sure. Did you have any buffalo wings? Yeah, I had a, a lot of buffalo wings, more <laughs> than I probably should have, honestly. I kind of felt it in my stomach later on. W- what was the best? This, I went to a place called Gabriel's Gate, and they had the best wings, in my opinion. The spiciness was on point. Mm-hmm. But I will say that Buffalonians don't want to be characterized only for the fact that they have buffalo wings. Which Makes sense. We all know yeah. they like to talk about how they're a resilient group. Um, They like to talk about, you know, their long manufacturing history and how that manufacturing history did a lot for this country. And that sounds just like Detroit. You know, Uh, we don't want to be defined by one thing. And similarly with both cities, you know, they've got their investments in these job training programs. Carrie, we talked about Western New York's workforce development investments in our first episode. But now let's get to the crux of it now. Um, What were some of the things that you found out? Yeah, I found out they have a lot of different programs with a wide range of career fields with all these different names from like mechatronics to programmable logic controllers. One person who stood out to me was Lentresa Atkinson. She was in a welding program. She's 30 years old. She's from the east side of Buffalo. Um, and funny enough, when she was younger, she didn't want to be a welder. She wanted to be a musician and a singer. I thought I would always be a singer. I hate to say that, but yeah, I wanted to be a famous singer. But in high school, Lentresa had to delay that dream. I had my first daughter when I was 15, and yeah, like, you know, right after I dropped, I actually dropped out of high school. Just strictly, oh, I need to make money. Then I had another child at 17. Then Lentresa got a job at Walmart and earned her GED while working there. And after she left that job, she decided to become a certified nursing assistant. She did that for a while, and she was good, but her heart was not in it. Interestingly enough, though, her uncle and grandfather both worked in manufacturing, so she was exposed to the field at that time. My grandfather, he worked in a steel plant when I was a child. Well, well I, didn't, I didn't know him. He passed from working in a steel plant. So I always thought, like, manufacturing jobs were just, like, really, really hard, like, for some reason. I'm just like, oh, I can't do that. Like, it seems like it's just strenuous work. How did Latresa end up choosing manufacturing? Yeah, uh, in a way, it was with the help of Buffalo Redevelopment Plan. The region needed trained manufacturing workers, right? And many residents of Buffalo, in particular residents on the east side, needed good-paying jobs. So policymakers opened the Northland Workforce Training Center there. After it opened in 2018, they canvassed the area talking about their programs. And one day at church, Lentresa learned about it, and she decided to check it out. It's not painful, backbreaking, strenuous. I mean, you're standing up all day, but it's not like, oh my God, this is, I can't do this, I can't bear it. It's easy, it's pretty easy. Right, so people had to change their perceptions. They thought of it more like Bethlehem Steel, sort of, 
you know, you get really dirty at work and it's, you know, you're sort of sweaty and hot and, you know, it's, it's not, it's not uh, the tech focus that really is. So CNC machining and things like welding, there's a lot of technology related to those things and people just didn't know it. Who was that? That's Laura Cabral, the director of the University of Buffalo Regional Institute. It's also called UBRI. The group proposed the Northland Training Facility as part of a, a broader economic development plan. And the place she was talking about, what is Bethlehem Steel? That's a former steel factory that, at its peak, was the largest employer in Buffalo back in the day. It closed in the 80s, triggering economic distress for the city. But prior to that, factory work is what put Buffalo on the map. I spoke with Brandon Kennedy of the Buffalo History Museum, and he said the Erie Canal is what started it all. After it was built in the 19th century, and after the introduction of the grain elevator, Buffalo became one of the world's largest grain capitals. From the Erie Canal to the elevator, and that sort of allows the rest of these industries to sort of grow around them and support them. And by the mid-20th century, the city's steel manufacturers became crucial for the American military during the World Wars. Within the decade and a half following the World War II, 200 factories and manufacturing centers, those all closed down. And that's due partly to foreign competition. Uh, They're operating out of obsolete facilities and new environmental regulations are in place. By the 70s, manufacturing advanced, and Buffalo struggled to keep up. In 1982, Bethlehem Steel closed its Buffalo factory. Thousands of people lost their jobs. Buffalo's population declined every decade from 1960 to 2020. And that fueled the perceptions people still have to this day about manufacturing there. We had a whole generation of parents saying, no, no, go to college. You don't want, you don't want that kind of job. You want this kind of job. Carrie, what happened between 1980 and today? Other industries emerged as manufacturing shrunk. In 1990, manufacturing workers made up around 17% of those employed in the region. As of February 2023, it makes up only 10%. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So why invest back into manufacturing after all these years? Yeah, that's a great question, Shannon. Uh, From the folks I talked to, The city has the manufacturing infrastructure and the facilities already there, and it's a part of Buffalo's identity. Plus, the state has invested in creating new manufacturing jobs. And according to Stephen Tucker, who's the president and CEO of the Northland Training Center we were talking about, there are a number of manufacturing jobs available or soon to be available that pay living wages. Right now, in advanced manufacturing, there are 3,000 job openings available right now that go unfilled every day. Um, And we're projecting to need to fill around 20,000 job openings in those industry sectors in the next 10 years, mainly due to retirements. 20,000 jobs is a lot. Would they have that many people interested to work in manufacturing? Getting enough people is part of their plan. Uh, When Laura Cabral and others were developing this project, the region's population was on the decline. So we knew the retirement cliffs were coming. We knew that tech was on the upswing. But people can do tech in San Antonio in Silicon Valley. The real question was, how do you get people to come and to stay in Buffalo? So if we didn't have enough young people staying, those are the ones who have families, buy houses, grow wages over time, and and ultimately spend in your economy. So we needed to really think more about creating great places to keep people 
and how that drives the economy for companies to add more jobs and to you know retain their workforce and have uh, a great place to work and live. Laura used the term placemaking frequently to describe their plans to make Buffalo and Western New York a more attractive place to live. One way they planned to do that was to place training and the jobs near the people who need it. All of our manufacturing training was outside of the city. Oh, wow. So we knew that if we wanted to really think about uh, accessible training, access to jobs, uh, training people for better wages, you had to put the training where people were. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we wanted people to be able to walk to it, access from uh, public transit. Uh, It was a really important thing for the placemaking aspect of what we really wanted to do for Eastside as well. Tell me more about Northland. Yeah. So the facility is located on the east side of Buffalo, which is the predominantly black area of the city. Lentresa lives nearby, and it houses five technical programs in advanced manufacturing and, and construction. Those programs are taught by local institutions, Alfred State College or Erie Community College. Everything that we do is driven by business and industry. So we wanted to verify that the jobs were there, work with business and industry to align our curriculum with what their needs are, work with business and industry to identify the equipment so that we can make sure that we're training folks for what's actually out in the market. The center also offers career coaching and wraparound services in addition to career and education programming. We assist our students with transportation, with substance abuse, with mental health, with housing. Northland was funded through the Buffalo Billions Initiative, which is a $1.5 billion investment in Western New York over the last decade. It's focused on economic revitalization. It wasn't all $1.5 billion for job training, though, right? No. There were investments in tech and innovation hubs and research centers and more of that stuff. But the initiative has had mixed results. How so? Some projects haven't been completed, and there was a 2020 audit that showed some of the tech funds were mismanaged. Now, Northland has, for the most part, steered clear of the controversy, but there were some members from the community that weren't completely on board at first. When it was pitched, I I said, we need to to first uh, commit to restoring and building our commercial corridors and our business sector. That's retired council member Charlie Fisher. He served as a council member at large for the city of Buffalo and has lived most of his life on the east side of Buffalo. He was uh, initially skeptical of the Northland Center because he believes a pathway to entrepreneurship is the key to bettering the area, not just jobs. So he doesn't believe Northland is the solution? Well, not on its own. He believes both job training and pathways to ownership are necessary. You you do need a, a highly skilled, trained workforce uh, upwardly mobile and indiv- mobile individual. However, um, any community that fails to develop an agenda and a plan, both short-term, mid-term, and long-term for the viability uh, and strengthening of the Black business is doomed to be a consumer community. Now, he said his concerns faded once Stephen and others joined the Northland Project and believes the center is doing good work. But he still thinks more needs to be done. I do admire their efforts, but sadly, as as it says in the Bible, this you ought to have done and not left the other undone. We did the jobs programs, but we haven't done the business programs. All right, Carrie. Well, you visited the facility, right? I did. What was it like? 
Yeah, um, it was interesting. Uh, in fact, Stephen gave me a tour of Northland. How are you doing? Yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> Stephen Tucker. Yeah, Kerry Jr. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Um, it's in a former factory building, and that's about 235,000 square feet. Uh, the part that's Northland is about 90,000 square feet. And the full campus fills an entire block. When I arrived, Stephen took me to this gallery space that stretches along the front part of the facility, and the classrooms are toward the back. The space is four stories high with cranes suspended from the ceiling. And at one end of the gallery space, there was this mosaic piece that caught my eye that was hanging on the wall. So the items that you see on the wall that are orange, that are red, that are gray, that are yellow, those were the the items that used to press out different shapes in metal and in steel. The facility is filled with new equipment for modern manufacturing, but Stephen says they did incorporate some older design elements that are still useful today, like the floors. This woodblock floor is a little bit more forgiving on your body than standing on a concrete floor. I see. Okay. Also, in addition, uh, the woodblock floors, they would soak up any oils or chemicals that were leaked on the manufacturing process. And once they would become, one side would become saturated, they would flip it over. That's kind of cool. Did you stand on it? I did. I did stand on it. Uh, it was really comfortable, way squishier than I would think wood blocks would be. After that, we eventually made our way into an electronics classroom. The students were working with these blue electrical devices that were like the shape of a laptop. And I'd never seen anything like it before. Jr. Uh, Peter, Peter Gullo. Nice to meet you, nice Peter. To meet you. So I asked Peter Gullo, the mechatronics professor, who's from Erie Community College, to give me a little bit more detail. Like, what in the world are these things? So these blue boxes are, uh, we call them uh, AC-DC trainers. So what they do is they can input um, DC power, like a 9-volt battery. Like the the batteries you put in your remote are DC. Uh Uh, We can represent that with a trainer. This allows us to build uh, components that you would find inside a remote or television Uh or a dishwasher or even a PlayStation. So when you break, when I was a kid, I played a lot of video games, I used to break my controllers, and so I would have to put them back together, and I would open it up, and there's a whole, the mother, the board in there. when you look at the board, all those components is what our students are learning. This is um, an electronics course, so they learn about uh, analog components as well as digital components that you would find in a a PlayStation, a cell phone, and that. So we we spend a full semester um, studying about the components that are inside circuit boards. Stephen and I walked around the facility, and I got to see the classroom for the electrical students. And instead of desks, there are three or four rows of walls with stations along the walls. And each station had a breaker box or an outlet socket, and it had electrical wires coming from it. And the more advanced students had more components and more wires um, than beginner students did. That sounds pretty cool. And I'll tell you, I fixed my own controllers, too. (laughs) But uh, how many students did they have? Yeah, that's a question I asked Stephen while we were walking uh, around. Evan, what's the total number of students, you know, in a cohort? Well, how many do you have overall here? Right now, we have 249 students here. Uh, We usually try to serve more than 300 per year. Okay. Uh, The first semester was like 257. This semester is like 249, but collectively, it will be over 300 new students served uh, this year. And then what's the graduation rate here? 
Right now, the graduation rate is around 62%, okay. uh, which is double the national average for right. community colleges and around triple the, the local average. The national average for community college for um, individuals graduating with a two-year associate's degree within six years is less than 30%. Once they finish, how likely are they to get work? Have you seen that from your previous cohorts? Like Definitely. The, the so right now, we have an 87% job placement rate. Oh. Okay. Basically, nine out of 10 students are getting jobs. And okay. Just about every student who goes to our program, we have hiring events uh, twice a year. They get multiple job offers before they even graduate. So how much money are they making when they do start working, Carrie? The Northland website, which Stephen says was last updated in September, lists the average annual wages of their graduates at $39,500. Now, that number is below the median household income in Buffalo, according to census estimates, But Stephen says as workers gain more experience, their wages can increase. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, the average salary for a mechatronics technician is about 60 grand a year. That's a middle-income job, but only about 300 people go through it. Uh, Is it hard to find out about Northland? Access is a big part of the equation. Placing Northland was only just the start of the plan. Stephen said that they also have an outreach team that goes to schools and churches, That is, again, how Lentresa heard about it. But just learning about it for her wasn't enough to convince her that she should enroll. The other reason was because of her aunt, the one who was always pushing for her to get an education. She passed away last year. I've always wanted to do that for her. She didn't know, but I always wanted to be like, oh, okay, I went to school, I did what she asked. I just didn't know what I wanted to go for, and it was just me finding myself. And she said after providing for her kids who are getting big, Northland's welding program is providing her the opportunity to find her own independence. They're staring in my face making their own food now. And I was just like, oh my goodness, like I've done so many things to make money to make sure I can provide for them. And they don't need me to to do everything for them. That's why when I came here and he said a pipeliner, and that involves traveling, I was like, I can do more for myself now. What what do you want for them? For their educational path, what do you want for them? Whatever they choose, but yeah, I I just want them to be successful in life. So... If you go to college, I'm happy. If you go vocational, I'm happy. Just just don't do nothing. <laughs> That's it. We wish her the best going forward. Thank you for reporting on that, Carrie. Yeah, sure thing, uh, Shannon. Thank you for having me. Most definite. That's Carrie Jr. II for Tight Knit. Lentrissa is training for a job that's already in Buffalo. That's why her training program got funded in the first place, to fill existing jobs. But like Laura Cabral shared, it's risky for Buffalo to rely on just one company or just one industry. The same is true in Detroit. So how do you bring jobs to a community? I called someone to find out. I'm Sarah Gregory. I'm the Director of Talent Solutions at the Detroit Regional Partnership. The Detroit Regional Partnership is an economic development organization that covers an 11-county area in southeast Michigan. We work very closely with our local county economic development partners, as well as the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, or MEDC. The Detroit Regional Partnership is relatively new. Three years ago, the goal was to bring 1,500 jobs to Detroit and southeast Michigan, and they met it. This year, the goal is 2,000. 
our whole angle is business attraction. We are trying to recruit businesses to come to the Detroit region to set up operations or expansions or headquarters here. And then once they are, you know, interested in Detroit, we have a team that is is meeting with them to support them on what that expansion could look like. What does the workforce look like here? Um, what are you going to find here in terms of partnership? How close are you going to be to your suppliers? What does the transportation network look like? The power and energy required for your facility. Sarah says for her, it's about leveraging information and connections to help companies that move or expand in the area to be successful. One company last year turned out to be a huge opportunity for the region. A big one last year for us was Major L. Um, it's content monitoring, essentially. So making sure that what is on the Internet and what is what you're seeing as a consumer of the Internet is safe. Um, so they work. They're a huge global company working with international clients all over the world. They were looking for a great place to set up their location for their next headquarters. And they chose here in Detroit. Their initial goal was to bring 500 jobs into the city. Their new goal is 1,000 new jobs here in in Southeast Michigan. They have nothing but great things to say about the Detroit region. Some of the others, so we we certainly supported on the Our Next Energy, the, the new battery facility that's going to Van Buren Township. Major L moved into a downtown Detroit office building without any incentives. Getting Our Next Energy to open its manufacturing campus in Wayne County wasn't as easy, though. Local and state government is investing over $200 million in grants and incentives. Some of the funds was designated to improve nearby roads for truck traffic, and education funding was brought into the mix too. A new EV job training program was created to get workers in place. Sarah says there's a lot of resources and groups to coordinate. There are nine other community colleges just in this region alone, plus the universities, plus we have our workforce development agencies like Michigan Works, and it can be a very complicated web to navigate, right? Especially for our companies that are either from a different state or from a different country. So that's kind of my role is to have an understanding of what's happening in our workforce ecosystem and then appropriately direct them and funnel them kind of to those right relationships based on the the individuals that they're looking for. And very often we are working directly with the community colleges um, to say, hey, they have a really good program that's actually like an exact fit for the skill set that you're looking for. And if you can come meet with the college and meet with the students, this will be a good recruiting ground for you. But when we're talking about new jobs, will they be careers that people can build their life, family and community around? Sarah says the goal is what she calls pathway jobs. Last year, 25% of them were what we call pathway jobs. And so what that means is it does not require a college degree, does offer benefits, and does offer a, a sustainable wage, and also offers opportunity for advancement, kind of more entry level, but are meant to create pathway advancement for residents. And in particular, when we have those pathway jobs, we want to make sure that we're putting those jobs in front of the organizations that are working with those populations Sarah says things have changed in recent years, and the need for well-trained workers is now a major factor driving expansion plans. With a tightened labor market, we are seeing talent kind of getting bumped up in terms of the priority level of concern in terms of the decision that they're actually going to be making. So sometimes, you know, like they have a great site, it's ready to go, but they're worried, am I going to be able to bring in enough talent here? Do I have enough workers in this location? Are they going to have the skill set that I need? And if not, then what's the gap and how long is it going to take us to train those folks in-house or on our own? 
you know, is it the one thing I can't say I've seen a deal that it was literally like the make or break on that, but it is an extremely important factor. So I had to know what makes Detroit attractive to would be employers seeking to move or expand here. Talent is certainly, it is one of our strengths. We have a a large population that is very skilled, deeply skilled, low turnover rates, um, pretty affordable. We we are not the cheapest in the nation, but we are not the most expensive and you get really high quality talent. So I will say that talent and our ability to sell on our talent is is a big piece. Along with that and kind of side by side with it is diversity. So we are an authentically diverse region. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to You don't have to try and strive for it. We don't have to try and get different people to move here. So that is a huge selling point and and strong point. The the fact that we are an international border um, and that we do have, you know, ports and airports, good airport and lots of harbors and such, you know, our transportation network is pretty good. You know, where we struggle, I wish we had an R&D tax credit. I wish our population was growing uh, faster, more I wish we had more housing because if you want to have more people and more jobs and you need housing to put them in and you need affordable housing to put them in, transit is always an issue. Um, If you want people to get to jobs and if you want people to, if you have people living closely in a community and you need people to get around that large community in a very geographically diverse region, we need better transit. While employers are looking for workers, there's another issue that the Detroit area is dealing with. Many would-be workers have stopped trying to find work. It's called the labor force participation rate. Our labor force participation rate is basically the number of people who are eligible, able to work. They're able-bodied. They're not too old. They're not too young. They're the, the group of people that could be working. That's what makes up our labor force. Our labor force participation rate is the percentage of peop- those people that are actually employed. So it's sort of different than the unemployment rate. And what we're seeing and what we've been seeing is that sometimes when our unemployment rate goes down, it's not because the labor force is getting employed to make that percentage go down. It's because people have left the labor force completely and the entire labor force has been reduced. That labor force percentage rate is something that people site selectors and companies that are looking for a new location, they're looking at that number. Um, And I would say that ours is it's in the bottom third of the nation. Sarah says if you think the labor force participation rate is down because people quit during the pandemic, that's only part of it. And it makes her job of attracting new businesses here in Detroit even more difficult. And that's been a persistent problem long term. The pandemic certainly didn't help, though, right? So we lost even more of that labor pool, particularly women in that time frame of of COVID as well. So it reduced, like that labor pool shrunk even further. The three biggest factors keeping people away from work are taking care of family members, child care, and transportation issues. So, what are the factors or methods that can improve this labor force participation rate? So I think that from an employer perspective, they're doing what they can by creating opportunity. You know, is it a Lansing thing? I think childcare and transportation would certainly help. You know, there are there are big barriers, but there are programs that are that are seeking to work on that now. 
it's a community development issue as well. You know, there's generational poverty, there's substance abuse and other things that really do affect that, that ability um, in our labor force participation. So it's one of those things that there isn't a silver bullet answer, unfortunately. And it's one of those things that we're just going to have to continue to work at and chip away at by bringing in new opportunities and then working with all of these great programs that we have here in Southeast Michigan. As Sarah noted before, the population numbers in Michigan have been holding steady. But if it dips, that's not something that's easy to solve. So we can manufacture a lot of things. We can't manufacture people. It's super unfortunate because if we could, um, I think that we would be way ahead in terms of, you know, our labor force. But we do have a lot of residents here, you know, that we can we can seek to upskill and seek to get into these these opportunities that DRP is bringing. And, and that's what we're here to do. That's Sarah Gregory of the Detroit Regional Partnership. For our next episode, let's talk construction and unions. How one construction business is getting intentional about building a pipeline of workers for the future. Also, a policymaker who thinks these workforce development programs are shortchanging the disenfranchised people who need them most. I'm Shannon Kaysen. We'll be back next week. Tight Knit is a series from the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation about the many ways people are working to build stronger relationships and communities. It's hosted by me, Shannon Kaysen. Our supervising producer and editor is Cease Detura. Production by Carrie Jr. II, Rob St. Mary, and Jack Philbrand. Mixing and mastering by Connor Anderson. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producer is David Lyons. Big thanks to the team at Lafayette American. This season of Tight Knit is produced for the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation by WDET, Detroit's NPR station. If you like this podcast, please rate it and share it. It'll help others find it too. You can find out more about workforce development at tightknit.org. You can also find us on social media at RCWJRF. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.